This episode is brought to you by Things to Draw Now. Do you get creative blocks? Whether you draw as a hobby or create masterful paintings, join over 4,000 artists by heading over to Things to Draw Now on all your favorite social media platforms for daily drawing prompts. To learn more, visit thingstodrawnow.com. This episode is also brought to you by our wonderful patrons. If you enjoy the Coffee and Cocktails podcast, make sure to like, subscribe, and become a patron for as little as one pound per month. By supporting the show, you get access to ad-free episodes, bonus content, panels, workshops, free merchandise, and much more. Just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast and subscribe today. Now on with the show. Hello and welcome to the 31st episode of Coffee and Cocktails. I'm your host, Dr. Ann Wand. This month for our Controversies and Contraband series, we have the pleasure of talking with co-author of a gothic cookbook, Alessandra Pino, who will be talking with us today about the controversial relationships in gothic literature between the servants and masters of the house, the Victorian roles of women, and gothic elements of mistrust. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Anne. It's such a pleasure to be here. Thank you. As per usual, we'll start off by having you tell us what drink you were having for the show, followed by a little bit about yourself. Ali, would you like to start? And I feel a bit embarrassed, but I'm actually having some Kahlua. Oh, good. <laughs> it's only 11 a.m. I mean, come on. It's fine. Yeah. It's close to noon. The thing is, um, I ran out of coffee, so it makes sense, right? It does. Rum the Irish coffee. do it, right? <laughs> 100% Arabica coffee beans, so I guess... It's fine. Yeah, it's totally fine. Nobody needs to know. Nobody knows. I don't know what you're talking about. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> she hold this giant bottle. Um, yeah, so I read... So we kind of got in contact through a bit of a sidebar. Um, it was, a, I think, a Facebook thing. And you were talking about your book, a gothic cookbook. And I've always yeah. been really interested in, you know, all those sorts of things. And I checked out your book and I thought, oh my gosh, that looks really interesting. And so I reached out to you and um, we got to talking about the work that you do and all those sorts of things. So could you just tell us a little bit about yourself and kind of what got you interested in Gothic literature and more specifically the concept of studying food? Oh, I would love to tell you because it's a little bit niche. Often I don't get asked, so thank you for asking, Anne. <laughs> Um, I'm doing a couple of things at the moment. So I'm completing a, a PhD at the University of Westminster in London. And this centers around the reliving of traumatic experiences through a language that relies on food. So as a parallel project, I started researching on the idea of Gothic food through literature and the fact that food has a language of its own and it's able to tell a story within the story. And it's not just a prop or an embellishment. So... This is how a Gothic cookbook came to be. And uh, I'm co-authoring the book with my friend and food journalist, Ella Bucken. Uh, like me, she's really passionate about all things food. And the illustrations are by Lee Henry. So it's really a really, really special project for me. And uh, the thing is that it has new insight into how food operates within the context of some of the most well-known Gothic novels. So when I was on the Facebook group, that's how I met you. I was kind of alerting all the Gothic communities of Facebook that we were in the, in the process of, of writing this book. So we got we got quite a good quite a good response. Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's um, it's I started reading. So you sent me a copy of your proposal, and I started reading. And I thought it was absolutely delightful. Um, you know, talking about you know 
this idea of Frankenstein, who is a vegetarian, but Frankenstein's not actually the monster. It's Frankenstein's monster and being reminded of that. And that the real monster is actually the man who created him. And then just getting into this idea of how food, as you mentioned, is a, a sort of a symbol into something bigger in terms of identity and one's placement in society. And I think that that is something that people don't normally associate as being controversial. And um, yeah, I think of, you know, the famous incident with Jamie Oliver. And for those of you that don't know who Jamie Oliver is, he's a very uh, famous British chef. And uh, he made a bit of a faux pas when he went, I think, was it Instagram? And he was showing people how to make paella and he put chorizo in it. And then the Spanish community exploded and said, you might as well just put a peanut butter and jelly sandwich in there because that's not how you make paella. So, you know, the whole idea of us thinking of food is sort of this sort of like a banal item that we eat all the time. And then you start to realize if, if food isn't made the way that you're used to or people claim your food is one thing when it's really not, it can actually make people quite angry. <laughs> so it can really it can really hurt people's feelings as well because it's part of their identity and people feel really strongly about food. And those are their food boundaries in the same way that a country has a boundary. Also, the foods that belong to that country become part of your identity. Yeah, it's 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 the idea is that there's more to food than what immediately meets the eye. So it's about asking questions like what is the the subtext and what is the message? Um, as part of our everyday life, we're so connected to what we consume that it can become really difficult to detach ourselves and look for meaning. Um, so that really interests me. And the chorizo example is a perfect example because for us, perhaps in the UK, it makes perfect sense to put it into a dish. We perhaps associate it to Spanish culture, to good times, to the sun, to <laughs> having a glass of wine with paella. But actually, for, for people, that don't see it that way and it's part of their identity they could be quite offended so the gothic genre uses food as a signifier for change so this allows us to observe how food is often more and more connected to fear and anxiety um, and revealing what lies beneath the surface of cultural and social propriety Um, so it's so you know there's so much more attached to to food than what initially uh, seems to be, you know, something quite simple like a sausage can actually become quite contentious. So I thought it could be useful to perhaps talk about how food is a symbol and explore some of its meanings in Gothic literature. Sure, absolutely. Um, Maybe some depictions of food in Gothic texts, such as Frankenstein and Dracula and Rebecca. Oh yeah, absolutely. Yeah, these are some of the texts that we'll be including in the Gothic cookbook. Um, Um, What I find really um, interesting is that we all have to eat and everyone does that. Uh, There is an uncanniness that goes hand in hand with eating because it's part of our everyday. Food is something outside of our bodies and before it enters our body, it's not us, obviously. So there is an unavoidable otherness when it comes to eating that exemplifies the uncanny. And the uncanny is defined by Freud as that which is strange in the ordinary. So in this context, the uncanny arises from the realisation that there is something very odd happening in perhaps the most vital of the activities that we carry out to stay alive, which is eating. 
So we engage with the outside world by placing parts of it inside ourselves, through our mouths, and for this not to feel odd, there are certain rules that we need to follow. So, you know, we, we need to understand why finding a tooth in our food, for example, isn't really ideal, or even worse, perhaps an eye. Um, mm. We would need to already have an idea of boundaries and an idea of what's right and what's wrong when it comes to food rules that we follow socially. Perhaps these are things, Anne, that we don't really think about. This is just automatic now. It's not something that we think about every time we do eat. But the rules are there and they're rules and boundaries that give food a meaning. Um, and this is something that British anthropologist Mary Douglas wrote about. So she states that the ingestion of food is also the consumption of a system of meanings. Um, and interestingly, she talks about meal systems that take place over a whole life cycle, like the christening cake, the wedding cake, the funeral baked meats. Um, and Roland Barthes as well, a French theorist, also famously stated that food is a system of communication. Um, so, you know, the communication and symbology of those items of consumption depend on the cultural context. And this is a, this is a good example, I think, that I often use, which is coffee as a symbol considered a stimulant for the nervous system is now associated to relaxation and this contrasts with its original function. So really categories of meaning can overlap depending on the cultural context. Um, so my deduction was and my, my leap was that if food is a signifier, it will also represent and symbolize what is dangerous within a community and within a society. Gosh, that is so interesting. Um, and I think also if we can sort of tie this into the concept of how that transpires into Gothic literature, mm. one thing that I think might be useful for some for some listeners is to understand, you know, firstly, when was the Gothic era? Because there's a big difference between Gothic literature and when that occurred and um, Gothic architecture, which was, you know, started in the 12th century. So could you tell us when was the Gothic era in terms of literature and why is it normally associated with dark themes that are sometimes combined with romance? We are in the Gothic era and we are still I in am? it. <laughs> oh, that's exciting. <laughs> um, that's what I love about the Gothic. It's so malleable and flexible and it changes and it changes over time. But the, the starting point, the official starting point, with the Castle of Otranto in 1764 with Horace Walpole and with early contributors, including Clara Reeve and Anne Radcliffe and Matthew Lewis. And at this point, there is a focus on a kind of pleasurable terror that expands the romantic literature of the time, whilst the 20th, 20th century contributors to the genre are Daphne du Maurier, Stephen King, Shirley Jackson, Anne Rice and Toni Morrison. And probably most people have heard of these, or possibly more than the earlier contributors to, to the to the early gothic um so because oh, Anne Rice did interview gothic, with an Anne vampire didn't she yeah correct right yeah. yeah yeah and we're still we're still in it and it's still evolving and it's still able to tell a story and tell the story of people that are perhaps oppressed marginalized um a little bit on the margins of society and it was always about that I guess so it becomes even more interesting now as society evolves and that's where food makes an entrance for me. Um, in the early Gothic, there is hardly any mention of food. In the castle of Otranto, for example, there is no food, actually. But then with Frankenstein, for example, um, we have a change you know, in society 
um, the late 18th, 18th century was a time where the modalities of food production were changing with the Industrial Revolution that had begun to transform economies. So that had previously been based on agriculture and handicrafts. So now we were moving into economies based on large scale industry and mechanized manufacturing and you know, the factory system. So then we see that change in the Gothic and we see how food comes in into that. And as you mentioned earlier, uh, the whole vegetarianism also connected to uh, undoubtedly to the French Revolution. And um, so, you know, it, it's, it's a very interesting time where food starts to make to make a, an appearance. And we understand why through this. Interesting. So I know you talked a bit about how you got involved in, in Gothic literature, but I'd like to know a little bit more. What was so compelling and, and necessary about writing a Gothic cookbook? What, do, what were you hoping to get out of it as a, sort of the main purpose? I worked for over 10 years in a Michelin-starred restaurant and um, I was in close, close contact with food, obviously, and food dynamics which were extremely interesting. I started to observe how, from my previous experience with food, mainly in the family, it was a moment of bonding. It was a moment of um, sitting together um, around a table and uh, exchanging jokes and having fun. In a professional world, you know, the restaurant world, um, you still have this. It's still a moment of um, communion of sharing, uh, people get engaged, people laugh, people obviously share stories. But there is also a certain tension and it's quite stage-like, um, mm. you know, with the entrance of the dishes. There's a lot riding on food sometimes and sometimes people meet for official purposes, business meetings, you know, at very high levels, um, there is a certain amount of stress attached to this. And I became absolutely fascinated. Um, I worked in one of the best restaurants in London and um, in Marylebone. And, you know, that was like a big family, but it was, you know, an incredible experience where I was able to witness one of the best chefs in the world um, and the team at work. And, the difference between kitchen and floor as well and how they kind of interact was interesting. Um, the pressure, uh, the tension and being able to, to work through that, that pressure and, and um, that was really incredible. But it got me thinking about, I wouldn't say negative, but certainly a darker side of food and the intricacies of um, customer service and being able to do what the person wants and because they're obviously paying for the food. And so all this kind of um, food related to a more financial setting, which was something that I hadn't really experienced in my, in my own family, obviously, because you sit down at the table and you eat and it's not really about um, meeting any expectations, whereas in a more professional world, it, it definitely is. And together with that, I went to a British library exhibition, which I don't know if you've heard of, but it was in 2014 called Terror and Wonder. And there I met for the first time two people that really influenced me, which were Kate Moss with an E at the end, who wrote The Taxidermist Daughter, and Sarah Waters, who had then just recently published The Little Stranger. And I was just blown away by them and by how they had used the Gothic. And there were mentions of food. And I think I did actually go 
and tried to speak to Sarah Waters and ask whether she had knowingly used food in her text. And she said, no, actually, I didn't even think about it. And so this kind of got me started on another trajectory, which was when food is used, often the writer doesn't know how it's being used, but it's something quite connected to their subconscious. So that's really interesting as well. So it's an insight into how food is connected to social um, social um, functions and social um, things that, sorry, this is <laughs> social things, um, but it's connected to the way society works and how it evolves. So it's telling that they don't even realize they're using food sometimes in a certain way. So I was fascinated by that as well. Mm. And also um, the funny thing is that on my birthday, a couple of years ago, Ella, who's the co-writer of the book with me, um, sent me a wonderful book by Edgar Allan Poe. It's like absolutely beautiful. And I said, thank you so much. And she said, actually, I wanted to get you a book about the Gothic and food because I know that's what you're working on, but it was impossible. And I said, well, why don't we write one? <laughs> she was a, she's a food writer. So, and she said, well, that's a great idea. So then that's how, in the practicality, it, we actually started writing it. <laughs> but the background of it was this, like many, many different elements working together. That makes sense. And I think it really ties in well with sort of the next thing we're going to get into about how um, food represents multiple aspects of society, whether it's subconscious or conscious. And in your book with Ella Buckham, um, you focus on the what you call the relationship between food and the supernatural. But there are also other elements to Gothic literature that connects food to violence women being controlled or tied down and historical um, basic, basic themes of suppression and servitude. And I was wondering if you could explain to our listeners how Gothic literature represents these themes and how it describes certain aspects of the past yes. and possibly the present. Yeah, absolutely. So Gothic novels are essentially about trauma. So we may or may not be able to see the ghosts that tell the story of pain and suffering, but they are there and they're beneath this apparent layer of normality, which is super creepy. And I love that. Um, ghosts tell you why they are silenced and women silenced for so long are often portrayed as ghosts. So their existence is connected to places, their bodies and actions, creating these strange repetitions and a certain oddness. So the strength of their emotions reaches out into the world and it creates something that goes beyond itself, reaching into the houses and places affected and shaped by that energy. So often we have houses, don't we? And the house is a symbol of matrimony um, and how women are tied to the house and it kind of suppresses them and it traps them. And this is what's amazing about the Gothic. The Gothic has, like in Frankenstein, wild um landscapes where um, you know there are trees and there are ruins but also the gothic can be claustrophobic and you can feel entrapped trapped within the walls of a very small um room you know in a massive home so it gives that idea of definitely of oppression um and the gothic also gives also as a way of discussing social anxieties. So if we take, for example, the Brontes, their novels conclude with seemingly what appear to be happy marriages and they secure it as a valuable social institution. 
But these are new versions of matrimony. So, you know, Mary Shelley and the Bronte sisters specifically address um, these romanticized ideals of marriage that are taught to women. And they use the marriages in the novels not only to um, destroy these ideals, but also to show the possibility that matrimony is dangerous and it is an imprisoning institution. So they also warn women that there is a potential of imbalance within the marriage to become abusive as well. Um, earlier authors of the Gothic romances, like Anne Radcliffe, for example, reinforce marriages, the ideal condition, and as a woman's ultimate aim and objective. Um, 19th century readers were familiar with these conventions of the Gothic novels, so they could predict the plot devices and the plot twists and the happy endings. So it's interesting that then in later Gothic, this familiarity is used to unsettle re to unsettle the reader. Um, I think that's really interesting. Mm. Yeah, I mean, so many things coming to mind, like things that I took for granted. So um, the other day, for example, uh, we, we talked about Cinderella was a classic example of this mm -hmm. idea of suppression and servitude. And I was reading it to my daughter and... You know, there's a there's a point at which um, the fairy godmother comes, and admittedly, this wasn't the Gothic, and it was you know, you know, told retold through the grim fairy tales. I get that, but um, the fairy godmother comes, and the fairy godmother says, "What's your one wish?" And she says, "I want to go to the ball." And I, after talking with mm -hmm. you, my first thought was, "Why doesn't she just ask for freedom?" You know, like, wouldn't that be the most logical thing is get me out of this hellhole? I've been trapped here for yeah. years. Because the reason it, she has to go to the ball is perhaps because that's where she's going to meet her prince and marriage is freedom for the, in, in that context, perhaps, you know, at that time. But um, what if he didn't like her? <laughs> if she showed up and he was like, man, I'm better. <laughs> I just, it just, I never thought of it before. I was like, you have that one key to happiness. And if you had picked freedom, maybe it would have, you would have gone to the ball yeah. anyway, because she knew it would have turned, the fairy godmother would have figured out it turned out it would be fine. But yeah. she didn't ask for freedom. And I just, yeah. I just wonder if those social constructs, like stories have a way of explaining how people think or at least um, how they used to think and maybe how there's still elements of that today where we don't necessarily think of an out. We just assume that this is just how things are. Yes. Um, yes, I think it's interesting and I think it's sad that she didn't even think about freedom because that's not a concept that was she was able to understand in real terms because it's something that she did, had not experienced really. Um, so, yeah, that's really, really interesting. Yeah. I mean, again, I hadn't thought of it before until the other day. And I was like, oh my gosh, this story's, this is messed up. <laughs> like the dancing bear, you know, even if you set the bear free, it's not like it knows what to do aside from that. You know, it's been trained for that. So yeah, that's very sad. I guess yeah. Cinderella's a little bit like a dancing bear. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, possibly. Um, and then this kind of leads into this idea of, um, you know, the role of the kitchen, right? Mm. And we had talked about in a previous conversation how the kitchen in Gothic literature transforms from representing the hearth house and home, you know, these really warm, wonderful, welcoming feelings to something much more sinister, a place of oppression, enforced rules, uh, roles on women, 
untrustworthiness and possible poisoning. And I would be curious to know from your perspective, in what ways do you think the kitchen represents controversial relations between servants and their masters Mm. and possible rebelliousness behind closed doors? Yeah, I don't know. I think the servant figure is absolutely fascinating. It offers such a great avenue to discuss issues of class and social expectation and economics and servants bridge the gap between a feudalistic past and, and the present. So they servants' ties to the household associates them with um, a feminine perspective. So it provides a means of presenting the female voice as well in cases where it hadn't otherwise where it had otherwise been silenced by male oppression. Um, so sometimes we have a description of ghost-like servants moving in and out of rooms and not really leaving a very tangible trace of their presence. So they are tied to a past, but they also, which and here enters the kind of strangeness and the, yeah, the weirdness is that they also have a status as family members and new ties to the economy of the outside world. So they become an ideal tool for Gothic authors to express concerns regarding changing social norms and the kitchen is very much the heart of the house and it's where food is produced and really behind closed doors who knows what goes on (laughs) you often have this impression in in films as well now I just remembered Get Out but there's I don't know if you watched Get Out but no no oh okay there's this scene where suddenly you see the door open and there she is the maid with the cake and she looks very scary and sinister and I love that because that's just what it's like you don't really know what happens you're outside you're at the table you're going to enjoy the food that's brought out to you you have no idea what's gone on in the kitchen you know which which also leads to kind of the idea of poisoning which was such a characteristic crime over the renaissance but is brought brought back up again in the victorian era so it's um it's it's 19th century crime fiction's response perhaps to cultural perceptions about the progress in victorian science i i think and in literature poison acts as a disrupting force yeah yeah but yet poisoning existed i think that's the other interesting thing is that these stories that are being written are not just fabricated necessarily in somebody's mind, but that poisoning, as you mentioned, you know, you had food tasters mm. and poisoning oh, yeah. is very much yeah. a, a common threat. I mean, I remember, you know, we talked about the Renaissance, the the Medici or Medici, however you want yeah. to pronounce it, family, yeah. and how they would, um, one of the ways in which uh, poisoning could be quite effective is to take um, crystals, i I don't have enough crystals to do this, but um, you would take them and break, or diamonds, actually, and you'd take them and break them down to a fine powder, put them in a drink, and then they would slowly um, erode your esophagus and your internal linings, and then you would you would pass, right? Wonderful. So, um, you know, and, and who are you going to trust but your, your trusted servant? Somebody who you can rely on, who you know is not going to say anything. So I think that that aspect is, is quite fascinating because it's not just something you read about in a story, but it's something that could actually potentially happen and probably did to many extents in history as well. No one would have known because there's no, because science back then wasn't to a point where you could have you know verified exactly what happened to your internal organs and why it happened. So it was actually, unlike more brutal forms of murder, it really appealed to respectable classes <laughs> as well yeah. as the poor. You know, this is a, and we see this resurgence in Victorian times because it's directly related to changes happening in modern society. So definitely that we have new technologies and advances in chemical production that had allowed cheap poisons to invade the market. So, well, this, yeah. yeah. And you think of the wise woman, right? This like concept mm. of a wise woman who would have been associated with 
with a kitchen, you know, mm-hmm. because that's where mm-hmm. she'd be preparing any and all of her um, ointments or what have you. Yes. And then you'd have also poisonings or other ways to mysteriously get rid of things that were of nuisance to you. Mm. So I think all of that's really fascinating because then it ties into this idea of the banal these suddenly becoming much more potent and serious and having yes. really big consequences in the long term. Yes, absolutely. So the poisoner, yeah, I mean, criminal, but a very civilized one. I love that. <laughs> so yeah. A little really, bit really. less brutal than other forms of um, sneaky. Of yeah. <laughs> Um, But so then again, this kind of leads into the next idea is um, whether you think that Gothic literature provides more of a potentially realistic understanding of how possibly Victorian society or even present day society has functioned as opposed to maybe more romanticized interpretations of the day to day. Yeah, I love I love Gothic literature because of this, because it just makes all the cracks visible and it re and because it's so connected to past readings and it's kind of cannibalistic in the way that it reanalyzes itself we're able to look back into the past and reevaluate reinterpret that literature through a new lens because the gothic is constantly changing so if what makes narration good is the fact that human nature loves to put together the pieces of a jigsaw puzzle, the Gothic puts out there and makes really clear that the last piece will always be missing. And I think, you know, the idea that we may have had of how Victorian society was is up for reinterpretation through the Gothic. So I absolutely love that about the, about this genre. And a possible revisionist history, which could also be really fascinating. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, So I was going to say next week, you're going to be doing a bonus episode for our patrons on the history of dark food. Could you tell our listeners and future patrons about what you'll be diving into? Yes. So I'm so basically at the moment, I'm just finishing my PhD at the University of Westminster and I'm doing research on a Cuban-American writer called Cristina Garcia and her literary output, which um, uses food to express anxieties about transnational identity. So narratives are set either shortly before or after Fidel Castro's rise to power in Cuba in 1959. And all her writing is centered around the upheaval of the revolution. And it makes use of food as a way to reconstruct the past and create new experiences through memory. So I've identified a food anxiety that has its root in the Gothic idea of food and consumption that we've talked about today. And I'm formulating an original theory which sees the reliving of traumatic experiences through a language that relies on food. And I have named it dark food. So I would be so delighted to talk to you um, about that more next week. Oh, I'm really, really looking forward to it. Um, otherwise, I've got to say, that's it from us at Coffee and Cocktails with your host, Dr. Ann Wand. I'd like to thank Ali again for joining us at the studio this afternoon. Additional links to today's topic, as well as a 10% discount code for a Gothic cookbook will be available on our website in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, then please remember to like, subscribe, and consider becoming a patron starting at one pound per month. It's support from our patrons that really helps to keep the show going. By becoming a patron, and you get access to extra bonus content, videos of the show, patron-only interviews, workshops, and much more. To join, just head over to patreon.com slash coffee and cocktails podcast. Otherwise, that's it for now. Thanks for listening and have a great week.